morning, saints. God is good, isn't he? Dr. Abe did a brilliant job this morning on a rather sensitive issue. And I had a couple of thoughts about that after reading that text. I haven't read it in some time, and I couldn't help but think for you men who are who are interested in studying the art of romancing your wife, I don't think it's the best approach to say that your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> I, too, uh, in terms of what Tim said, I, too, uh, am deeply privileged to, to return to this place. I, too, think that this is a wonderful place. I think there is a very sweet spirit in this place. I think this is a holy place, and I think there's a lot of very serious people in this church, serious about the things of God. So for me as a person that gets to visit a number of churches every year, it truly is a delight to come back here. I love you all very much, and thank you for having me. In, in the years that I have been studying evangelism, I have made the discovery that there are two absolute best times to share the gospel, in season and out of season. <laughs> the Jehovah's false witnesses knocked on my door. I opened the door, and the lady said, we're from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. I said, oh, that's terrific. I do have some questions about the Bible. Maybe, you'd, would you like to come in for tea? Maybe you can help me. She gets all excited and she waves her husband in. He's standing on the sidewalk, and she's all excited. And So I let him in the house, and I said to my wife, I said, Honey, the Jehovah's Witnesses are here. Could you put on some tea? And she goes, Oh, sure, great. <laughs> so they sit down in my living room, and this lady says to me, her opening comment is, Did you know Michael was actually, did you know Jesus was actually the archangel Michael? I said, No. Let me go get my Bible. And I ran and I got my Bible and I sat down and I opened it up and I was in anticipation of a great Bible lesson and I said, where does it say that in the Bible? And she says, well, it doesn't actually say that. I said, oh, well, how would you know that then? And she said, well, that's what they tell us at the Watchtower Society. I said, well, how would they know that? And I don't remember what her answer was, but it was really a lame answer. And I said, you know, I've always wondered about John 1.1. I said, how does that read in your Bible? And she says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. I said, isn't that interesting? I said, was Jesus a true God, or was he a false God? And she said, oh, Jesus was a true God. I said, oh then Jesus was God. And she said, well, no, no, that's no, no. Jesus wasn't God. I said, well, isn't that what you just said? And she said, well, yeah, but he's not almighty God. I said, oh, who is almighty God? She said, well, Jehovah is almighty God. I said, well, you just said Jesus was a God, and now Jehovah is God. I said, oh. Oh, I get it. You're polytheists. And she said, no, no. I said, well, you just said there's one God here, there's one God there. That's two gods. I said, this is kind of confusing. I looked at her husband. I said, do you think this is kind of confusing? 
So we go around and around for a little while on this, and we're not getting anywhere. I said, well, who was Je- If Jesus wasn't God, then who was he? And she said, oh, well, he was a created being. I said, oh, where does it say that at? So she takes me to Colossians, and she says that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. And I said, oh, isn't that interesting? I said, you know, that reminds me of David. I said, how how many brothers did David have? She said, I think he had seven. I said, yeah, I think so. I said, "Uh, where did he fall in the birth order? Do you know? And she said, yeah, I think he was the youngest. I said, yeah, I think he was too. I said, then why does it say in the Psalms that David was the firstborn of many brethren if he was born last? And she said, well, I, I... I'm not sure. I said, well, what happened to Jesus after after he was crucified on the cross? And she said, oh, he was raised a spirit creature. I said, oh, he wasn't raised physically? And she said, no. I said, well, in, in, the, in John it says that Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. But he was speaking of the, temp- he was speaking of the temple of his body. And I said, That word body is soma in the Greek. Do you know what soma means? She says, no. I said, it means physical body. I said, if he was raised a spirit creature, let me just ask you one more thing. Do spirits have flesh and bones? And she said, oh, no. I said, well, do they eat fish? And she said, oh, no. I said, then why is it in the back of Luke when the disciples saw Jesus and they were afraid because it says they thought they saw a ghost? Or they thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus said, do not be afraid, for spirits do not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he ate a piece of broiled fish right in front of them. And she said, we have to go. (laughs) I said, but I still have more questions. She said, no, we have to go now. I said, but you didn't finish your tea. She said, no, we have to go. And she looks at her husband and she goes, come on, Harold. And Harold goes, Yes, dear. <laughs> On their way out the door, I said, gee, if you give me your phone number, maybe we, maybe we could do this again sometime. <laughs> and she gave us the phone number, but they wouldn't come back. When the false teachers tried to trap Jesus, Jesus never argued doctrine with him. All he had to do was simply ask them the right questions And it shut their mouths every time. I had a sister come up to me between services just now and say, were you the guy who taught on the Trinity? I said, yeah. She said, you know, I got a copy of that tape. And I gave it to a Jehovah's Witness that I know. And she said, you know, maybe you could learn how to refute this thing about the Trinity because you may run into this sometime. Would you like to listen to it? And I go, yeah. I thought that was brilliant. How she, <laughs> how she came in by stealth and said, you might have to learn how to refute this someday. Would you like to hear it? I thought that was brilliant. Questions are often more compelling than answers because it forces the person to come to the conclusion in his own mind. And if he says it, it must be true. All that to say this, when you're right about God, And you're right with God. You never have to be intimidated by the world, the flesh, or the devil himself. The word of God says in Proverbs 28.1, 
The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as lions. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold. That word could have also been translated confident. The righteous are as confident as a lion. I studied the word righteous in Hebrew. Who are these righteous people that are as bold as a lion? The word righteous in Hebrew had three entries, four entries, pardon me. The first one was just and right in one's cause. Are we as Christians, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, do we have a just and right cause? Yes, we do. There is no greater cause on the planet. You haven't found anything worth living for, my friends, until you found something worth dying for. And Jesus certainly is worth living for and worth dying for. The second was just and righteous in conduct and in character. Conduct is what you do and character is what you are when no one is looking. Righteousness as justified and vindicated by God. Saints, we are righteous and justified and vindicated by God because we have been declared righteous. The moment you were justified, the moment you believed, the moment you truly believed that the moment you confess with your mouth Jesus the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you were justified and declared not only not guilty, but righteous in his sight. You're the only righteous people on the planet if you're a blood-bought saint of Jesus Christ. The next entry was right and correct. We're right and we're correct because Jesus is right and Jesus is correct. So based on that, we can be as confident as a lion. The lion is the king of the jungle. Lions do not walk or live in fear. Proverbs 30.29 says, The lion which is mighty among beasts and does not retreat before any. You know, when lions come to the watering hole, everyone else is wrong and they're right. It's their turn to drink. Nobody argues with them. Some of the heroes of the faith, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was righteous and justified before God, and Abraham was bold in obeying God in his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Moses stands before the king of Egypt and says all the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. And he says, this is what Moses said to the king of, king of Egypt, he said, all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, and all the people who follow you, after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. David and Goliath, you know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king makes a decree. When you hear the harps, when you hear the lyres, when you hear the music, everybody bows down to the statue. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are standing there. The sound of the lyre, the harps, the bell rings. Everybody bows down. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the only ones standing. And I can just picture someone going, psst, psst, king. Neb, look at those three. So Nebuchadnezzar looks up and says, Hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't you hear the decree? When you hear the sound of the music and the trumpets and the lyres, you're supposed to bow down. Now we're going to do this one more time. And the music goes off and everybody bows down and they're the only ones standing. 
These guys were bold as lions. And they said to Nebuchadnezzar, Our God will deliver us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down to your God. These guys were bold. Daniel prays three three times a day with his windows wide open, praying towards Jerusalem. When it's punishable by being thrown into the lion's den, Daniel is unafraid. He is unmoved. Queen Esther risked her head in order to approach the king without an invitation, praying that the scepter would be extended, and Queen Esther was righteous and bold as a lion to come into the king's presence. The church exploded in growth in the first century when the Spirit of God fell upon the apostles. One of Peter's first sermons recorded in Acts chapter 3, I believe it is, when Peter said, You murdered the Son of the living God. Peter was as bold as a lion, and thousands of people were cut to the quick and cut to their hearts and broken. And they said, What shall we do? And Peter said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that all of us nailed Christ to the cross? Do you realize that when an unbeliever stands before God, when he stands before the judgment bar of God, what he is going to be charged with is murder? You know, it's one thing in the city of Chicago to murder some some street person that nobody's ever heard of. But if you were to murder the son of the mayor, or if you were to murder a child of the president of the United States, they would bring all the powers of this country, all the powers of the legal system that were available to make sure that you got the maximum penalty possible for killing the son of a president of the United States or the mayor of the city of Chicago. What is the charge going to be when an unbeliever stands before God? You murdered the son of the living God. And I can imagine people might say, wait a minute, when did I? Jesus was 2,000 years before I was even born. But it was our sin that nailed him to the cross, and it was his love for us sinners that held him there. We murdered the son of the living God. You know, to whom much, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. Boy, we've got a lot of reasons to be desperately, deeply, madly in love with Jesus Christ. I asked the men on Saturday, do you think you'd die for a cockroach? Somebody told me later, I just step on him. God could have stepped on us at any time, but he loved us that much that he was willing to die in our place. Peter said he was willing. Peter was crucified upside down. He was bold as a lion. Where would we be without people like John Wycliffe and Martin Luther? It's possible we'd still be in the dark ages, but these guys were willing to sacrifice their lives to translate the Gospels in our language. When Luther discovered salvation by grace, his life became one long act of lion-hearted boldness against the abuses of the Roman Church. In 1521, Luther appears before the Catholic Roman Emperor Charles and a council that had the power to execute him for heresy. The prosecutor cried, Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? If this was a movie... For some reason, they always like to give these Germans an English accent. But if this was in a movie, Luther would have sounded like this. 
Since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. For they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. God help me. Amen. It was Luther's bold conviction that the Bible was right that gave the local governors the courage to stand up to Rome, and today there are more than 500 million Protestant people who believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, plus nothing. Our good works are the result of our salvation, never the cause of it. Hitler died in infamy, but the names of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, and Corrie Ten Boom live on. Evil to prevail, the only thing necessary for evil to prevail, as you all know Edmund Burke said, is to do nothing. When the communists took over Romania, they gathered all the pastors together, and the pastors had two choices, renounce their faith in Jesus Christ publicly or go to prison. One of those pastors was Richard Wormbrand, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. His wife leans over and whispers, they're spitting in the face of Jesus. What are you going to do? And Richard Wormbrand says, if I speak up, you won't have a husband. And Mrs. Wormbrand said, I'd rather not have a husband than be married to a coward. <laughs> Wow, that's the kind of guy I married. <laughs> he was taken to prison. He refused to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. He got up on the stage. He preached the gospel to the communists. He was hauled away immediately, and he spent the next 13 years being tortured for Christ. He refused to renounce his faith and, in fact, led many of his torturers to Christ his book is an outstanding book. I highly recommend it. It's entitled Tortured for Christ, if you haven't read it. Richard Wormbrand died in February of 2001, and his ministry, Voice of the Martyrs, is to this day still bearing fruit. How do we get this holy boldness? Deliverance from timidity. We have not been given a spirit of fear, the word of God says, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, let us not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you would like to be more bold in your witness for Christ, deliverance is an act of grace. It's something that God does in you and through you, but paradoxically, our parts must be factored in. God's part. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence that we have in Him. If we ask anything according to his will, he will hear from heaven. We will have the petitions we ask. And our part, I believe, is found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I was in a grocery line at a. I was in the line at a grocery store to pay for our groceries. I had one of my young sons with me, and it was during regular school hours. The cashier looked at me and looked at my son and said, "How come you're not in school?" She said to my son, and he said, "Well, we homeschool." And she looks at me and she says, "What about socialization?" I said, "Well, isn't what you're asking me?" How are we going to get my kids to conform to your kids? And she said, well, yeah, I guess essentially that is what I'm wondering. I said, that is precisely what we're trying to avoid. And then Jonathan looks at the, at the guy that's doing the bagging and says, Dad, how come his hair is green? I said, I don't know. You'll have to ask him. True story by Gail Irwin, a pastor out in California. He says, my father was a pastor. At one point in his ministry, he began taking flying lessons at a nearby airport in order to go into the interior of the state to begin some additional churches. Once while at the airport for a lesson, a military training plane from a nearby airbase landed there. That landing violated military regulations. The pilot got out and chatted with my dad and others there. He asked my dad, have you ever flown in a training plane? No. Would you like to? Sure. Hop in. He wasn't supposed to ask my dad, and my dad wasn't supposed to get in, but he did, and he did. This errant pilot did not use adequate, adequate runway to take off. He managed to get airborne, but was unable to clear some trees beyond the runway. He clipped the top of them, and the plane crashed. Life was changed for everybody at that moment. The pilot was not severely injured, but my father was. His brain badly damaged and his left side paralyzed. The Air Force, dictated by military discipline, moved to throw the pilot in prison for 25 years. My father, who was cut from a different cloth, went to bat for the pilot and pleaded with the Air Force not to be so hard on the pilot since he had boarded the plane voluntarily. So the Air Force issued the pilot a dishonorable discharge, which is severe enough in itself. That We were penniless, so my parents approached the Air Force to see if they could help us. Their response, quote, we are not responsible because this man was not doing Air Force duty when this accident occurred. We may prosecute you for getting in the plane if you don't leave us alone, close quote. Now, this became a civil liability case. The pilot was responsible, and he knew that, so he disappeared. My parents began a year-long hunt with the government to help find him. That was before the days of computers. They know where you are now. After locating him, they wrote a letter like this. Sir, apparently you are running from us, and we really don't want you to live this way. Please know that we forgive you and absolve you of all liability. You owe us nothing. My wife and I are both signing this letter so that you can live free. We only ask that you let us know you have received the letter and you accept what we say. There was no answer. 
A couple of months later, they sent a copy of the letter. This one came back, stamped on the front was, moved, left no forwarding address. He was running. My parents renewed the hunt. Another year passed before they found him. He had moved a great distance away. Once again, they wrote him. This time, the letter expressed more urgency. Sir, obviously you are running from us, and we really, really don't want you to live this way. Please, please know that we forgive you and you owe us nothing. We want you to live free. So my wife and I are signing this letter again. We only ask that you let us know you have received the letter and you accept what we say. There was no answer. A couple of months later, they sent a copy of the letter. This one came back stamped on the front. Move left no forwarding address. He was running. Unlike our God, who is much more persistent, this attempt ended my parents' search. So somewhere on this planet, a man still runs, terrified that I might find him. (laughs) Yet he holds in his hands a letter. All that he needs to live free, he just doesn't believe it and won't receive it. There are millions of people on this planet right now running from God, terrified that he might find them. Yet they hold in their hands, if this was a Bible, they hold in their hands a letter, a Bible. All they need to live free, they just don't believe it and they won't receive it. I told the brothers this Saturday, as we discussed the 68 words of the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he didn't teach them a prayer. He taught them the heart of God for his people, and he taught them the principles of prayer. He taught them the proper heart attitude that was needed to approach the throne of God with confidence to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. His opening, there are, there are basically seven phrases consisting of 68 words, which you can quote in about 20 seconds. When Jesus said, pray in this manner, he had already warned them not to pray by rote, as the pagans do, using vain repetition. The poor Catholics have their rosary, five Hail Marys to every Our Father. The poor Buddhists have, the, have their prayer wheels, Uh, The Muslims, uh, five times a day, they have a prayer that's broken into 17 different sequences. The Hindus have the Vedas, which are basically mantras to to be repeated again and again. And Jesus said, don't be like the pagans. Don't pray vain repetitions. Rather pray in this manner, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I wish we had time to go through all seven phrases because it's a fascinating study. But the very first word, our, Father, had to begin to short-circuit the disciples as they were listening to this because the Jews only knew God as the Father of the nation. And at the time, Judaism had become, for all practical purposes, a dead formalism of religion. To the ancient Jew, God's name was so holy They so feared and revered the name of God, they dared not speak the most holy name of God. 
And Jesus says, when you pray, you say, our Father. The very first word is a plural. It's the plural of the Greek word, eagle. The very first word says, if God is your Father, then you are my brother. The very first word is, a, is an indictment. It's a lesson. It calls us to repent from selfishness and self-centeredness and self-will, self, 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 basically Oprah theology. God is calling us to repent of selfishness. And what's, the, what's implied in there is to have a heart of generosity and to have a heart of hospitality. It is to learn the attribute that God himself has, which is that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And when he said we could call God Father, Jesus revealed that Christianity is not a religion, it's a revelation. And once you've had the revelation, it leads you to a personal relationship with the living God. This blows my mind. The doctrine of adoption is implicit in these first two words. We have been adopted and we have been given the right to become children of God. Which means we are the only people on this planet who can pray. Not Hindus, not Muslims have the scepter extended to them so you can actually approach the throne with confidence. I'm reminded of the verse in Ezekiel 22 where God says to the people, he's about to bring judgment. They're in idolatry, they're in rebellion. God is going to bring judgment on the nation. And in 22 of Ezekiel, God says, I sought for a man to build up the wall and stand in the gap before me. In other words, I sought for a man who would intercede for the nation, that I might not destroy the nation, but I found none. So judgment fell. I take that to mean that since you don't care enough to pray, well, then you're going to get what you deserve. You know, I'm not a gloomer and doomer. I believe our future is as bright as are the promises of God. Paradoxically, I also believe that we live in the most ominous time in the history of the world when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. I also believe that we have the greatest opportunity before us since the first century. I believe that we have the greatest opportunity to be soul winners, to be salt and light on this planet, because the darker the darkness becomes, the brighter and the more glorious the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes. Now I want to leave you with this thought. The word of God says, to whom much is given, much will be required. You and I sit here with Bibles, the whole revelation of God. We understand the things that the prophets themselves did not fully understand. I further believe that the angels are watching all of this happen in real time. And the angels longed to look into the things that we understand. To whom much is given, much will be required. And you have been entrusted with the secrets and the mysteries of the universe. You're the only ones who have the cure for sin. The man living next door to you is dying of sin. If he had AIDS and you had the cure for AIDS, would you tell him about it? Even if he might reject you? If you had the cure for cancer, do you think you'd be screaming from the housetops trying to get the attention of the scientific and medical pharmaceutical communities? I think you would. 
I just want to give you one one minute illustration and then I'll close. A friend of mine was deer hunting. He was consumed with the idea of getting a big buck. He couldn't think about anything else. And he was out there and finally the day was gone. And he was so into what he was doing, he completely lost track of time. He completely lost track of where he was. And it occurred to him, oh boy, the day's over. It's starting to get dark and I don't know where I am. He wasn't prepared to spend the night in the woods. So suddenly his perspective completely changed to being consumed with the idea of getting a big buck, to being consumed with the idea of finding out where his car was so he could go home. The greatest perspective change we're ever going to experience is when we stand before the living God, when we're facing eternity, and we look back at this puny little thing called time, this little 70 or 80 years by strength, but then our life is over. It's nothing but a a twinkling of an eye, and it's over, and then we stand before the living God, and we give an account. Our lives will be tested by fire, and we give an account for what we did with what we had. I fear for the people who have buried their talents and will suffer loss when they stand before God. I came here to encourage you to be as bold as a lion for Jesus Christ. We don't want to be ashamed of Jesus. He loves us. We're blood-bought saints. Ask the Lord to make you as bold as a lion. And I promise you, if you pray that prayer, it won't take a day before you're standing in some line to pay a pay at a gas station or something and you'll hear somebody use the name of Christ in anger. God's elbow will be in your rib saying, hey, <laughs> you going to say anything? Be an opportunity for you to lovingly, gently say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Let's pray.